Hello, everyone, and welcome to Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ, the, what am I, the ever-emotionally overwrought, needy, lacrimose Pisces, and I'm very happy to be joined today by a special guest, who is... My name is Ben. Uh, I... I am back uh, as a co-host, which is very exciting, um, to talk about bros and, you know, a fire sign. I'm a Sagittarius and, you know, just living my life out here in, in Baltimore. He is. So we are very happy to have Benjamin here with us today, my favorite sag fag, as it were. And as he alluded to, we are going to be talking about bros, the new much ballyhooed historic romantic comedy uh, starring Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane. And I, I won't belabor this intro very much because I want to get right into it because we have a lot to talk about today because among other things, it is also National Coming Out Day, which we will have a brief segment about that later in the show. And on a more somber note, we will be bidding farewell to the great Angela Lansbury who passed away today at the age of 96. So... There's a lot to talk about, so let's get right into the meat of the matter, if you will. Um, bro, I guess I can uh, lower my voice for a minute or two. This will be the new voice I'll be using for the podcast. I'm only kidding, of course, um, but there is a whole di- dialogue about gay voice, which we'll get to very shortly. So I'm going to resurrect a, a segment that we don't haven't done in a while, but since I have a special guest, I'm going to put Ben in the hot seat and ask him to give me a 15, or word less, 15 words or less summary of bros. Okay, um, that's it's tricky. Um, uh, gay podcaster, down on love, feels ready and skeptical at the possibility of a hot boy giving him attention. I think that's that went over 15. Too many. That went to about 20, but actually it's a pretty good summary. Um, right? I think that was actually quite a good tagline, probably better than the actual one that was used for the film, but we'll get to we'll get to that part of the conversation a little later. But obviously, it does star as I said Billy Eichner who plays the character of Bobby who is a podcaster, a very unrealistically successful queer podcaster, I have to say. I think he said he had something like a million subscribers, which I find a questionable <laughs> claim but I mean if you all want to help Queens of the Bees your favorite queer movie podcast become get up to a million subscribers we wouldn't say no <laughs> but he uh, unexpectedly meets Aaron who is a hot sort of jockey broy guy at a mixer at a club the two strike up a quasi relationship but gradually kind of come together and you know there are some conflicts of course you know Neither one of them is particularly um, ready for love, but they're both yet also ready for love because there's a lot of like back and forth between them as to whether they are capable of getting into a relationship. And when the movie begins, Bobby is pretty much a 40-year-old man who has never had a serious relationship, which I guess such people exist. I don't understand it, but be that as it may. So I thought maybe we could start a little bit by just talking about the cast because I think that obviously, as is so often the case, they carry the movie on their shoulders. And I think that both Eichner and McFarland deserve a great deal of credit for how much they're able to bring out with these characters. Yes. Um, well, let's all first preface the whole discussion with this is a fantastic rom-com. It's a great movie. It's funny from start to finish. It's, 
it uses a lot of the formulaic tropes that are part of kind of that vernacular, but it doesn't, it's not overwrought. Um, there's a lot of like surprises, like even me as like an open out gay man, I was like clutching my pearls at a couple <laughs> moments because I couldn't believe that I was seeing something on the screen that was actually depicting um, not just gay relationships, but but gay courting and mm -hmm. how bizarre and um, uncomfortable it can be, especially for people that um, aren't 100% sure of themselves. And I think this movie really shows both of these characters for whatever their attributes or flaws are, um, that they both struggle mm -hmm. and there are different ways about how to approach dating. And they've kind of retreated through their 30s and had fun and, you know, have been really successful in their own right. Um, but they're kind of not as happy as they'd like to be. Um, and maybe having somebody in their life that means a little more is something that they need in order to feel that happiness. So that's kind of where the movie starts. Um, you know, he, he's, I mean, the cast is great. I mean, we, uh, the two leading guys are amazing. Luke McFarlane blew me away. Mm -hmm. um, Billy Eichner blew me away as well. Just, I know he's a good writer. I know he's a good game show host, but that he was able to be a leading man and so um, likable, um, to a lot of different demographics is not an easy task. And I think that he really, he really nailed it and just kind of like showing, you know, how so many of us have the insecurities that we do approaching dating, relationships, our early 40s, you know, all of that. And, you know, with the backdrop of New York City is just so quintessential and just like, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a perfect movie in a lot of ways. So I don't want to... This is not a bash session. Oh, right? Yeah. I mean, they know that our listeners don't tune into Queens for skepticism or cynicism. Exactly. Or hostility. Exactly. We don't review things we don't like. That's my policy both on this pod, but also generally speaking. And I, I like the way that you drew out, I think, a really important sort of thread that runs through these films that I think runs right through the bodies of its two actors, which is that they both represent, both as actors, but also as characters, very different aspects of queer struggle. Because... The film makes a great deal of emphasis on Billy Eichner's Bobby being the sort of queer, like what we think of when we think of queers and subversive, resistant, a little bitter, a little cynical, like all of the things that are emblematic of the skepticism with which queerness regards homonormativity, courtship, relationships, culture in general. On the other hand, Luke McFarlane... Aaron, both in terms of Luke McFarlane's own star text, since he's so well known for his hallmark and for being brothers and sisters and other more sort of like traditional genre fare, represents on the other hand a sort of like assimilationist queer. Like, so they both are coming at this issue of unhappiness from very different directions. Bobby's unhappiness comes at least in part as a product of his queerness um, because he still struggles with a lot of internalized homophobia. He doesn't necessarily think he deserves love, which is really what it comes down to for him as a character. And who hasn't been there, right? Whereas for Aaron, it's more about he is just not capable, he thinks, of giving love. And that's sort of very interesting because he's the, mo he's the more stereotypically attractive. He's the object of desire. 
both for Bobby the character, but also for the audience, presumably, because he is so emblematic of what gay people find attractive. But he's also deeply unhappy in his job, and as he makes points, repeatedly hates his life. Right. And, and I think it's also worth mentioning that, one, they both... They're different bodies, but they're beautiful bodies. Right. Okay? Um, to act like, you know, uh, Billy Eichner's character is, is the ugly duckling in the situation is not... It's not at all fair, but how we view ourselves mm-hmm. is fair. Um, and so, you know, whatever his past was, it treated him as such that he didn't feel that it was necessary or, or you know, possible for him to find somebody that he, that he connected with on that level. Um, and then, you know, for both of them, I think it's, it's they're, they're both um, kind of emblematic of, you know, a genderless kind of um, trope. Uh, for lack of a better word, in, in rom-coms where, you know, one is the hotter, more sure to himself and the other is the more brainy mm-hmm. and, um, you know, much more historically, you know, accurate or educated or academic or, you know, and, and the two of them come together in the in very early in the film and they realize, wait, we think we're polar opposites, but we actually have a lot in common. And even though, like... I think you're beyond my league and you think you're beyond my league. Like maybe we're in the same league and maybe that's what we should like bond over. And I think very quickly in the movie they do. Right. I mean, there's, there's trepidation of course between both of them, but they realize very soon on, you know, in conversations with each other and, and you know, the interactions that they had um, that maybe this guy's worth giving some one-on-one time because we can also talk about the fact that, you know, that's that's part of... Uh, it's part of culture. Right. It's not just part of gay culture. It's part of culture that there's a lot of um, polyamory. There's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of things going on that complicate and make things more amazing but also more complicated when it comes to actually trying to date somebody. And if you're looking for any reason or way to kind of keep people at, you know, arm's length, um, inviting a third or a fourth uh, or being, you know, being a part of that kind of culture um, definitely can keep you, um, keep you kind of isolated and safe from the emotional versus the physical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because there are a lot of gestures toward, throughout the film toward, like, polyamory and things like that. Like, there are many moments when, like, Bobby's friends are engaging in polyamory. They make a joke about the this in-universe's version of Hallmark, which is a lovely knowing, a, a, a wink to McFarlane's own sort of star persona. Um, so, but, you know, obviously, as a rom-com, it is somewhat conservative in the sense that it still relies on the couple meeting. But I really, I really like what you said about that each of them has to recognize that the other, they're worthy of self-love and love from others because i think you're right to say that even though aaron sees himself as you know this object of desire he also doesn't think he's worthy of bobby's love which is so i mean i love the scenes when they're together and there's a phenomenal amount of chemistry between eichner and mcfarland like i have to admit that when i saw the trailers that wasn't always obvious but i really do think that they both bring out a phenomenal performance from one another and it's really to McFarland's credit in particular because it would have been so easy for him to fall into the more staid, less compelling model of a Hallmark heartthrob. But he really brings out a very soulful performance that to some degree 
is in opposition to his physique. Like, we don't expect that kind of body to have that kind of depth. Like, that's just how we are. Like, we don't expect a muscle gym bunny to be someone who's capable of experiencing, let alone expressing emotions. But when his eyes tear up, I feel with him. Like, it's really quite extraordinary, the emotional richness of this performance. No, I, I, I 100% agree. Um, I think that he he brings a level that um, it kind of it, a lot of things flip flop I mean gender wise role wise um, you would think that he would be the more stoic character that he, you know that Billy's character would really want to try to like break the shell and like get him you know get him to meet his family and you know to get him to, to admit to his feelings and this and that and when it comes down to it Luke McFarlane's character kind of came forward with where he was what his intentions were he kind of fell into like oh my mom's coming and my family and my brother and stuff and if you want to come like they're going to be here for christmas because that's the quintessential time to be in new york at christmas you know and um do you want to hang out for the weekend and it just kind of like happened organically but that wasn't on billy's character which is um also was a turn for me because I just assumed it was going to be on the other side of things um, because that just tends to be how that how that happens. Um, but I think I think that the movie really takes takes an active role and um, in looking at you know what sexual positions, body types, um, levels of feminism, mm-hmm. um, you know profession like all of these things you know if you're from the country versus from manhattan like all of these things like they mean things in the movie and they're valid but they also don't depict how the movie you know runs its course and comes to terms with itself to end up you know with them hugging and loving on each other right i really i want to get not to gush but my listeners know i gush whenever i both when i like something but when i like something that someone says i i gush i'm very much a bobby from this movie like i felt an uncomfortable amount of familiarity with uh, billy actor's character bobby not just because i host a podcast just in general but i like what you said that the vulnerability goes both ways like you're right that in a rom a traditional sort of rom-com cut and dry binary one of them would have been the emotional one that draws the other one out but they each draw the different kinds of emotions because they each have different emotional roadblocks like yes bobby is more demonstrative and like flapping his hands about and confronting people because he's billy Eichner, so of course he would be that way but it is also the case that he's the one who feels a great deal of reservation about getting emotionally involved because he doesn't want to get hurt again it's why he finds it so difficult to forgive aaron when he has a brief when he kisses some guy that he was in love with in high school, it's not even like a full-fledged affair. They've just had an argument and he has a lapse of judgment. But because Bobby has so internalized the idea that he's not lovable or not worthy of love and that it's too dangerous to love, that's his emotional roadblock he has to overcome. But likewise, Aaron also has to come out. And like, I like that the film roughly gave each of them equal billing in terms of their emotional growth and emotional like maturity. Like They each have a conversation Bobby with his friend, uh, Aaron with his brother, about like rec- how to reconcile their feelings for each other and come back together. And I like, like I said, I think that 
that's one of the things that makes this film really shine as a rom-com is its ability to both work within the conventions of the genre but remain very self-aware and even sort of critical of some of its own conventions and willing to revise them as necessary. Yes. But speaking of McFarlane's body, I just want to briefly note that I really like the fact that he has crow's feet. Like, I mean, yes, both Eichner and McFarlane are very beautiful people, but I like that they're not perfect. Like, we see the flaws in their body. And we, in Aaron's case, we see that he takes testosterone to, like, build muscle. Like, it's a really interesting deconstruction of the, the body myth that so many gay men buy into, that it takes work. It doesn't just happen, but it actually is a labor. And is often, in many cases, a defense mechanism that people use to, make, to both make themselves a, objectively be more beautiful to the those who what they want to desire them, but also to deflect from, you know, their own inner turmoil. Yes. Um, I think it's also worth talking about Guy Branham um, as Bobby's best friend, um, or one of his close friends. Um, you know, I'm very much on the other side of the spectrum of this, but, like, Guy Branham is a... It's a very tall man. He's a large man. Um, you know, we're just... He's... He's always good at everything he does. Everything he writes is very good. I don't. He has a book out. You know, it's a memoir. He's he's very very funny. But even he comments on you know Bobby's confession of like, oh, I'm ordering tea, blah blah blah, and I'm you know I, I need to get bigger. Da da da. It's like okay, well, <clears throat> one, you're looking for the shortcut, and two, you know it takes work. Right. Like you can't just take the shot and expect it to just miraculously happen because, you know, he, like fellas like me that are, you know, much smaller and can't build mass, um, we, we've run the gamut of trying things mm-hmm. um, to be more in the center of gay culture because gay culture and gay, gay attractiveness is a very skewed... Um, view and it's a very narrow view and like even as the the millionaire oh in the yes movie, right um bowen yang yes yes even as bowen yang uh pointed out in his little uh, scene stealing moment of just being an awful awful gay person that's very self-centered which you know that happens um heaven forbid but he was so funny in that moment but then at the very i mean the very end of the scene you think the scene's over and he's like by the way we're having a pool party and both of you are too old to get in the pool and like that was it like Mm -hmm. but both of them understood the fact that like it doesn't matter that we're attractive or not doesn't matter our you know our professions or any of this you know we're we're too old to be in the pool at this peer's house Mm -hmm. because that's just how it is because why question it so um so there's lots of like moments in the movie that really point out ageism sizeism you know uh you know just a lot of different things i mean even the hairiness you know Mm -hmm. i mean there was a moment when they were in bed together and he just comments on how bobby is like so hairy and like how he has a concave chest and that's like really different and of course Bobby's self-conscious about both things because they're being pointed out because that's just how people internalize any comment on a physical feature is like oh it's bad Mm -hmm. Um, but he's actually appreciating him and appreciating their differences and um, I think that was a really kind of pivotal moment um, for for Aaron's character Mm -hmm. he's like 
Oh, I'm in love with this guy. Yep. You know? No, I really like that. I want to just elaborate on a couple of things you said. One, I did. I do think that one of the things this film that makes it so enjoyable for queer audiences is precisely how astute it is in observing so many of the things of queer culture that we understand as queer audiences. Like that's true in the first five minutes when we get like Bobby corresponding over Grinder, and then he has this very weird and awkward hookup where the guy basically jerks off onto him, and then it's like, okay, bye. Or he said, you want to finish? And Bobby's like. Eh. I'm okay. I'm gonna cut, I'm gonna cut and run, which we've all been there. But also, there's mentions of poppers, like you know, the gay sex is often very fun, but also very awkward and funny. Like those are things that only gay men in particular get, and I really appreciated that. I mean, as you we were talking about in the pregame, like when was the last time you saw poppers mentioned in a like a, a movie in a theater? Which goes to what you were saying about a certain kind of awkwardness that we felt as viewers because we're just we weren't raised with that like we are the generation before like the mainstreaming of queerness per se so it could still feel very like oh my god the straights are watching this are the straights watching like you know is, are, are my grandmothers watching this like right and just i mean the 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 over the not even over the top let me i i, I see that's just me um kind of making it more than it is but just the mention of like anal sex Right. And butts and poppers and you know none of neither none of these things are you know only in queer culture. Right. I mean, I've talked about poppers with straight friends. I have friends, straight friends, that have wanted to try anal with their you know husbands and have you know that's how they've attempted it because they did a Google search right. and found them at the sex store and never knew what they were and like you know just that it's like. It's not as taboo as we think, but to see it on the screen and actually like be sitting with, you know, a queer friend and just like <clears throat> um, experiencing that together. I mean, there were there were a couple couple three moments where I like grabbed your hand because I was like, "Is this really happening? Yep. This is this is like such a honest depiction mm-hmm. of like how." how funny and weird our dating is and like we only talk about it with each other and like with a very few select you know straighter bi friends um and and you know i think that's something maybe we should touch on too is that this movie you know uh, so many of the criticisms of so many gay movies gay tv shows whatever it may be is that they're you know people don't feel represented mm-hmm. and they get up in arms about the fact that they they feel like it was a depiction that was either in a negative light or a positive light it made it too nice or too you know it you can't find the right balance in trying to find that balance and also use a romantic comedy like format mm-hmm. is so difficult it like is. i would never i wouldn't even know how to approach it so the fact that like this was Amazing and like there were people in the theater. Yeah, I mean there weren't many because it was a, a matinee but on a like, Tuesday. Yeah, but there were there were people in the theater that were like laughing along. Nobody got up and walked out. That's true. I've been to a few movies where people have just gotten up and walked out, and this was not one of them. Like people were enjoying it. I think that also like even if all of that, uh, you know, talk about this, that, and the other, and like it's all intriguing. It's also like. People that they know, people in their families. This is this is a spotlight into mm-hmm. them, which rom coms have been for us for our entire lives. Right. 
I don't understand a straight marriage, but I understand it a lot more because of rom-coms and sitcom television shows that have showed me how they operate, what are the rights and wrongs, you know, what are the, you know, the, the, you know, dad's the adult Mm -hmm. and mom, you know, mom's always, you know, overworked and tired, like whatever those things may be, we learn it from media. Yep. And what we consume. That is really right on the, right on the nose. But also, you know, I think that one of the things that I think that this does really well is, and surprisingly well for a rom-com, because we don't normally think of rom-coms as a genre as being like socially conscious, with some exceptions. But what I appreciated about this is that it took these, the, you know, the traditional boy meets boy story, which if I was to give a 15-word summary, that would have just been it, boy meets boy. Um, and drama ensues. But what I appreciated about that is that it takes this ongoing debate within the gay community of assimilation versus like sort of queerness and maps it onto, to a degree, this romance between Bobby and Aaron. Obviously, Bobby, as I've alluded to earlier, is sort of the more, what we assume to be a more subversive character because he is a queer historian. He's running a queer museum that's getting ready to open in, in Manhattan. You know, he runs this podcast. It's Billy Eichner, so he's just, he is subversive by his appearance, whereas Aaron is more, you know, family-oriented. His family is from a small town in upstate New York, much what we would expect of sort of, an, you know, the classic assimilationist. And part of the hurdle they have to overcome in the narrative is how they navigate the fraught space that that creates. Especially, which of course comes down to the dinner party, where they're having dinner with Aaron's family, and Aaron's mother, who is played by uh, Amanda Amanda Beers Amanda from Pierce, yes. famous to us '90s kids for playing Darcy. That was another moment where I grabbed her hand because right. it was like, why does she look so familiar? Right. And then you brought it up. Marcy from I, I died. Not Darcy, but Marcy from Married with Children. Yeah. And she's, you know, was talking about how she's a second grade teacher and Bobby sort of challenges her and is like, do you teach queer history? And she's like, well, no, I think they're too young for that. And then, you know, this leads to a, you know, a conflict because he really confronts her about it, gets very um, on her face about it, because, of course, that's who he is. And it's also retaliation for Aaron asking him to tone it down in earlier conversation when his family visited. So it's just sort of that moment crystallizes the one of the fundamental differences between the two of them is that for Bobby he's always had to work against the like the sort of pejorative of queerness like that he's too gay he's too much whereas for Aaron it's always he's just, he's been able to fit in so much more within straight culture right but when it comes down to it his his love lies and his attraction lies to somebody that challenges him. And right. he says it in the movie. And it's it's somebody that he feels like he can learn some things from. But, you know, also, you know, when it comes down to it, emotionally, Luke McFarlane's character, Aaron, is, is much more ready to have the hard conversations about their relationship mm-hmm. and want to, to try to move forward. He was the one that was like, you know, putting it out there and chasing him. Um, mm-hmm. But then also, you know, he stepped back when he needed to. Um, but he knew that he was in the wrong. Right. Much sooner. You know, it, it, it was like two scenes of yeah. him apologizing prior to, to Bobby really coming to terms with the fact that like, yeah, I didn't just say those things. You know, I, I know I can. 
and I know it can be biting, but I don't have to be, and it was unfair of me to do so. Um, that took him a while to come to terms with because, you know, he's used to pushing people away, and, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, they're just, they're evolved in different ways mm-hmm. as, as, as people, um, you know. <clears throat> They're just, they're, they're evolved in different ways. They're stifled in different ways, like you brought up earlier in the pod. And, you know, I just, I think that that depiction was like, really, it wasn't, it didn't feel at all Mm one-sided and it didn't feel at all like role-based, um, which, you know, made me very happy because when I look at the two of them, like, I find them to be ultimately as attractive as each other. Yes. So, I mean, I get the point that, like, he's a Hallmark heartthrob and, like, he's a very classic American look, um, you know, and, like, they, you know, really hit it home that, like, you know, he played hockey with this other hot guy and, you know, that that's, of course, the guy that, you know, he felt like got away, perhaps, or at least was, like, somebody he really had a crush on mm-hmm. in childhood, which is... A tough thing to get over and I you know TJ and I have talked about how those days were and, and our first crushes and like you know we've talked about that extensively on this ex- pod <laughs> extensively how how those you know because we don't have as as gay men of a certain age we don't have a whole lot to pull from of actual like dating experience mm-hmm. prior to our 20s so you know you know, for both of us, it was more just like our childhood friendships morphed into something else. And then one of us was on a different page as the other. And you had to address it at some point. And then there was years of trying to find yourself. Um, and I think both of these characters kind of did both things um, just in different ways. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I love that because I think that it's really important that they're both, as you say, men of a certain age because both. Billy Eichner and Luke McFarland are both in their 40s. Um, Diegetically, they're roughly the same age. Like, I know that you said that when Aaron refers to being like a 15-year-old in 1995 or whatever it was, like, you felt that because you were that age at that point. I was somewhat younger. (laughs) But I also appreciate that I think what it does, what these performances bring out in their own ways is queer pain. Like, but it doesn't make that the object of the film. Like, it's not like this in-universe's version of Brokeback Mountain, which, you know the film ruthlessly pokes fun at. <laughs> you know, it says that straight people love to see queer people miserable, which is true. But this film doesn't do that. Like, it doesn't shy away from the queer pain. Like, there's a very notable moment, I think one of the things that, if we lived in a just world, would earn Billy Eichner an Oscar, is when he's on the beach and he gives a soliloquy about how, you know, he went to undergrad and he was told he was too gay. He went to grad school to be a journalist. They told him that he was too, his voice would be too queer to be on TV. You know, that nobody was interested in queerness. No one was interested. There was not enough of a market for his queer history books, but he had to do this because it was the only choice he had. And there's so much raw pain and emotion in his voice that all of us who grew up in the 90s in particular felt at one point or another. As I referred to, like in you know my the last episode where I was talking about Dahmer, like for those of us who grew up in the 90s, like the most prominent queer stories were almost always of tragedy and death, whether it was John Wayne Gacy, whether it was John, whether it was Jeffrey Dahmer, whether it was Brokeback, you know, or Philadelphia, like time and again, we see yeah, Matthew like, Shepard, Matthew Shepard. I mean, it's, it, the list goes on and on. And it's just, it just was, everything felt like a cautionary tale. And that, 
even though it's the only thing that felt right to me was to continue forward as my authentic self, I felt like it was possibly going to lead to my demise. Right. So that, I mean, that's not unique. That's just being of that age. Right. And, and, and Billy Agner's character, you know, said the same thing, you know, in so many ways that, you know, he just didn't want to move forward. Um, but he had, to, he also knew he was a writer he knew that he wanted to write from his own experiences and about the people that he, that live in his life, and you know he surrounded himself with. What else is he to write about? Right, I mean, because his this whole soliloquy comes out because Aaron compliments him for being the most self confident person that he knows, and he says, "I don't really have a choice. Like, it's either that or." Not he didn't say this, but either that or die. Like you know, you you have no right. choice. Like, nobody nobody else is going to give us the self confidence. Right. Is what basically is the takeaway and what we learned, you know, growing up was like, okay, so you can have really low self worth and move about life, and that's I've done it. It sucks. Um, or you can you can really try to carry yourself very high, and I think. Um, for our non-binary and trans brother and sisters, like I, I think that they um, challenge that a lot sooner, perhaps, um, and having to to really just know that they they have to look out for themselves because nobody else can be entrusted with like our own self care and our own like pocket of love and like then it gets into the, the mm-hmm. Armistead quote of you know biological versus logical families and and all of that but you know I think there's a there's just we could talk for hours about this movie we really could it's very layered there's so much like I, I can't wait to see it again mm-hmm. which is really shocking to me because we have not talked about um, really the showing um, not that anything is really about money but in movie industry it is about money um so i think it's a really it's a really important movie in so many ways i would hate i would hate for the you know to know that because it didn't make x dollars um in the first two weeks you know that that means something for green lighting other projects that are you know pushing the boundary more so or less so or you know we've seen so much so much in the last few years since the pandemic began like of just queer centered um you know film and tv shows and 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 it just it's of all you know some of it it's is really for young people like Mm -hmm. very young people and you know i feel watching it like oh my god you know this is adorable because it's for teens and this actually are teenagers in a teen show but you know the characters are so coming to terms with things so much earlier Mm -hmm. um but i think a lot of that kind of gets lost in a lot of movies um where they just were always the periphery character so there isn't the character development to see why they're a jaded queen or right. why they're the bitchy guy behind the front desk. Like in this movie, it's, it's quite obvious. Like he blows up and just like word vomits all over Deborah Messing. 
Yes. We I are, mean, it's remiss that we have not talked about oh, Tamara Messing yet. I mean, but Bobby does have a to set the stage. So he's yes. trying to set he's trying to set up this museum, which I want to talk in a minute about queer history because I think that's important too. But they manage to get Deborah Messing and possibly like give them some money, and she comes to the museum. But then Bobby, who's you know, Aaron has kind of ghosted him, so he's like just losing his mind as one does, which is another. I won't say that I sometimes frantically text Ben if I haven't heard from him, but I may sometimes do that. But that's true of, that's just my persona. He's grown used to that after a year and a half. But anyway, and then he just, as, as Ben says, this word vomits all over at Deborah Messing. He's like, she's, she has this wonderful moment. She's like, I'm not Grace. Like, I don't need every gay man of the world telling me about their problems. Right. He, he, he wants to process you know, what is going on in the relationship that is falling apart and he's now not getting return texts about. And it's like, this is his moment, like, in his professional life to, like, show up and he's the representative out of the whole round table of, you know, LGBTQI people to, like, go talk to her. And, of course, he's like, I'll do it. And then he goes out there and he just, like, falls apart Mm -hmm. about, like, the fact that he's not texting back and what does that mean and this, that, and the other. And, like, obviously is looking to her as her character on TV. And she she had just had enough. And um, so, yeah. And then it circles back to that at the very end of the movie, which is a very cute little moment of just, like, it made me think of the Will and Grace mm-hmm. t- TV show moment with Patti LuPone and um, and yes. Jack's character where he's like, Patti LuPone's such a beautiful brass <laughs> trap. Exactly. He's like, shut up, Patti LuPone. Like, I felt like he was going to push her and say, shut up, Deborah Messing. It didn't happen, but I really wish it did. But it was basically the same effect of right. like... You know, much further in the movie, she shows up at the opening of this, and you know, it's a very, it's a very nice moment, and and she's so pleased and wants to like, you know, effervesce about that to him, and he just, he just had this other moment that we'll get into that, you know, he his his, you know, his focus is not, it's not on her, it wasn't in the first place, and it still isn't, right. and um, uh, which is kind of magical in so many ways. And also, you know, there were there were a lot of like throwbacks to other other rom coms mm-hmm. that I didn't see coming, and then it was like, oh, they're doing that too. Yeah. Oh my God, they're gonna he's he's gonna run down the street. Yep. When Aaron in his athleisure, I can't. Right. So I'm actually glad you brought that up because one of the things that I really love about this film is that it manages to be both very self-aware slash cynical, but also very sentimental. But it does both in equal measure and it doesn't fall into either one. And I think that's a really powerful balancing act that very, very few films achieve. So I think it's a real testament to its success as a movie that it is able to do so so effortlessly. That we see that moment when Aaron runs down the street, which is of course evocative of all sorts of similar moments throughout rom-com history. It happens in girls. It happens all the time. But it, it it's both knowing but yet you buy into it. And that's a very tricky thing to accomplish. Like it could have been very easily just a laugh. Ha ha, how, look how silly they are. But we love it, as you said, because he's running down the street of New York in his athleisure after having this real, had this realization that he really does love Bobby and he wants to be with him. And so that, then Bobby sings this very corny country song. And it's just... It's not corny. Cool. 
It's, it's it's corny, but it's, it's corny, but, but it's heart- so no, good. It is it is very heartfelt, and you had tears. In of your course, eyes. I had. Te- I mean, of course, I, I did. did. Of course, I did. But that's the joy of it. That's what I'm saying. Is like it is both right, very it was a shout out to Garth Brooks. Right, and, it's very uh, facetious, but we're invited to feel with it. Like we're, we're it's not making like it's both a wink and a nudge, like lots of in jokes, but yes. we're also invited to both buy into those jokes, but also to buy into the feeling. Correct. Correct. So I mean, it was both. it was very well done, but of course, anytime somebody's like, "I wrote a song, and here are my friends <laughs> that are gonna like play," we're on a stage. Like it's hokey. It's of hokey, it and it's it it, it 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 evokes that feeling in you of like, "Oh, this could go very badly," and you're not sure how things are gonna end. But of course, you know, it's a rom com, so. You know, he's. They both have tears in their eyes. Deborah Messing's in between them. She doesn't know she's got to get shoved out of the way. Um, so there's lots of just moments like that in the movie that just really kind of bring you back to one of like, okay, this is. It's a it's a rom com. I mean, it just is. I mean, there's there's a little mini montage in there. You oh, know? there's kind of different lovely montages. Just of them, like you know smiling earnestly at each other and like sipping on their drinks and you know the p-town and water on the beach yes yes and i i really appreciate that like i think i alluded to earlier that i really value that this film doesn't shy away from queer pain like we see it in the museum we see it like (laughs) bo and yang's character wants them to have like a basically a queer trauma haunted house so like there and of course I, as I already talked about like the the allusions to Brokeback and other sort of queer tragedy narratives, but at the same you know while it obviously plays all of this for humor, I mean it does acknowledge that they exist, but it never lets us forget that this is a romantic comedy that we want these boys to get together and that they're going to end up happily. So when they walk off into the streets of New York at the end, we breathe out a sigh because if yeah it's like yes thank fucking god like we get to finally have queer joy that's why this movie is important like i think that's why it's so valuable you can tell i'm getting worked up like if you could see me right now like the hands are shaking with like emotional intensity but that's why it's so valuable like the film really leans in heavily on both its marketing but also within the diegesis of history like this this stuff matters like we have so long denied things like bros at all. Like, that's the whole reason we started this podcast two years ago was to shine a light on the, you know, the gems of queer history. This is a historic text, and that makes it important, but it's also, the film itself is about history. And so, like, that's what gives this romance so much power. And, like, so to dismiss it as just another empty romantic comedy is a real mistake. And I think that what hopefully we have demonstrated so far, at least, is that it's really complicated, but yet also really enjoyable. That it's, this, you know, it's both historical, but also hilarious. Write that down. It is historical and hilarious. It is. It is both those things. And I think, you know, having the backdrop, you know, even though it, it is in itself is kind of hokey of just having this, like, world's first LGBTQ, you know, museum in New York City um, <clears throat> and how that, you know, how many voices are trying to interpret like what that is and what that means and should there be interactiveness and should there be a ride that just shows the trauma of like growing up gay and, you know, all of these things and then, you know, <clears throat> when it comes down to it at the end of the movie, it's like, um, a lot of it is just kind of, you know, a lot of like 
dioramas and and people um, just with plaques just kind of explaining who they are to history and that that took uh, Aaron's character a moment to like process the fact that like okay like maybe I'm not taking myself as seriously or like you know the backs of people that I've you know ridden on to like get to where I am as seriously as I should have because you know essentially I'm a quintessential like you know yuppie classic you know American guy yuppie yeah I mean and then there's you know then there's the opposite side of it which is you know Bobby where he's he feels less of himself but he's probably equally as attractive but that's not the point the point is that he feels less of himself so he leans into what he's felt and 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 knows the history and knows you know who he needs to credit throughout his life for having the rights and the and the things that that he has and he, he appreciates that but it's it's not enough for either of them to to just sit on those things so like they both are bringing a lot to the table but it also i think it just it kind of is good for both young and older audiences mm-hmm. to appreciate the whole gamut and also not feel preached at right so it's like they really wanted to drive home the fact that like these are really important people stonewall is really important this is what happened you know and you know so on and so forth but they didn't want to you know preach too heavily make it seem like they you know it was it was too overwrought um and also have a takeaway from the romance of it all. It really, they they made it a moment for both of them to kind of like have their moment in the museum to kind of like collect themselves about where they're at, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In comparison to their elders. And um, I think that's something that we all could benefit from um, is just kind of thinking back to like what others' plight was, you know, not so long ago and that we lost you know a whole generation of people and here we are now and like we're living in this moment of great turmoil but at the same time a lot more freedom than we had so a lot more freedom to love a lot more freedom for them to have a movie that talks about butt sex and poppers you know and to have you know Guillermo Diaz and Jay Rodriguez. Harvey Firestein. Harvey Firestein. Kristen Chenoweth. Yeah, Kristen Chenoweth. Just so many. I mean, Guy Branham alone um, is a gem. And I think he really, he is a co-writer on it. So I think he really kind of took what the script was and then in the moment kind of spiced it up. And I think that's why it felt so alive. Mm -hmm. um, Because he really has a way with that. Um... But, you know, his character alone, like, there were a couple scenes, two, three scenes maybe, where he was just, like, periphery on the dance floor. And I just, I mean, I adore him, so I was just watching him. Um, But he just seemed so comfortable in his own skin, on a screen, dancing on a dance floor. Like, I, I don't know how many people you could put them in that situation and have them look comfortable you let alone like you know spice up the script and also like sell a scene steal a scene you know be kind of the levity but also like the voice of reason in a situation of like 
Yeah, you're you're spitting off a little bit. Maybe not inject your thigh with the testosterone because that's going to take some work and you ain't ready for it. And we know this and you should probably just talk to that boy. And then he's like moving on with his life and just, I mean, he's very... He, I don't know. His his role in the movie was I could have I could have watched him all day. So I want to like segue use the two things what you said to segue. First, the the idea of not being preachy, and then the second of being comfortable in one's own skin. And I kind of wish the movie's marketing had done both of those things, like that it had been really comfortable just marketing it as a rom com, and that it had been confident enough in its own sparkling dialogue and very well-written scripts to let that sell it as opposed to as you said like the preachiness because it is undeniable that the like the promotion for this film leaned so heavily into that partially because it lacks a major star because neither are Eichner nor Marfala much as I love them are big stars even Bowen Yang isn't that big of a box office star because it lacks those things it had to try to do it other ways but that clearly backfired because it did not make very much money at all on its opening weekend. And as you alluded to earlier, I don't want to harp on that because I don't want to buy into the myth that that's somehow indicative of what the film is because I think that's a gross mischaracterization. What I do want to say is, as I've already, like, when I was on my soapbox, I think it is important for those of us who are, for those listening to this podcast to go see it, if you can go see it, see it more than once, I think it is a film that will reward us for watching it more than once. I do think that it probably would have succeeded more on streaming if only because the expectations would have been less it would have been less about box office and more about streaming numbers which are easier to achieve because you can get people it's hard to get people out of the house let alone to see a rom-com but i do think that i'm glad this movie was released theatrically i do think that don't let the historic quote-unquote nature of it scare you away like don't let that convince you that this is homework because it isn't because i think it's a genuine pleasure like i went in with a healthy dose of skepticism despite I'm not always skeptical but I was a little bit just because of the, the constant preachiness of the production Eichner didn't help any of this with his finger wagging tweets by the way but I do earnestly think the film succeeds on its own merits it is both incredibly funny but also very sophisticated in a way that I very rarely see in rom-coms it really does hark back to the golden age of rom-coms which was like the 90s early 2000s for that reason alone, it deserves to be seen. And hopefully, my earnest hope is that you know it'll pick up by word of mouth and succeed on streaming. But I do think that in the promotion did not do this movie the favors that I think it deserved. No, and it yes, it, it continued to lean heavily on the fact that how historical it was. Um, when yeah, just pointing out the fact that it is very much. You know, an ode to Nora Ephron mm-hmm. and a ode to to just kind of that, that 90s era of, you know, when people went to the movies to go on a date. Right. Like, that doesn't really... It's not... You know, I've been... You've been reading about it. You've probably been writing about it for 10 years, about the death of, you know, the rom-com, the death of the movie theater and, like everything's moving indoors and then the pandemic hit and so it's like i don't think we can fault the straight people or you know the people that didn't come out in the first couple weekends when like i I don't i mean where we are in baltimore it's been some of the best weather for the past week 
everyone's been outside they've been doing all these things like you know I was dying to see this movie but I was waiting to see it with TJ but also like I just don't think people are running to the theaters right now they want to be on their bikes they want to be you know at a pumpkin patch like um, so to fault people for not showing up to the theater when honestly this is the second movie I have seen in the movie theaters since before the pandemic right um so uh, you can't you can't everything is all the statistics are skewed at this point like there's no you can't really look back at anything and say well this is what should be expected so I'm sure the studios have like an idea of what they expect and of course there's the budget that you know that they had and what they want to expect and all of that but like it just seems so premature to like um come out and say it's because of this right I mean, and whatever I, that reason, is. right? And I saw two things to sort of ra- to sort of wrap this up because I, you know, we've already gone almost an hour, and as much as I would love to keep going on about this movie, but I did want to say two things. One, my deepest regret about this, well, I, say, I say this as if I wrote it and, and directed it, but I, as should come as probably no surprise to anyone, I have a, an enormous amount of emotional investment in this movie, having now seen it. I will go, I will defend this passionately with all of the fire intensity that I bring to everything that I enjoy. Anyway. One, I hate that the dominant discourse around it is that it failed box office wise. Like that's what I regret. Not just the failure itself, but the way that dominates the news about the movie is deeply unfortunate. Um, and I think that hopefully, as I said, word of mouth like this podcast will help to to work back against that. But just as importantly, I also think that it's not just the straight's fault. I also think it's the gays' fault <laughs> because the gays are notoriously ungrateful bitches about everything. I think I call this the looking effect, and pe- listeners who've listened to the, the episode that we did a year and a half ago on looking will recall that, you know, gay people love to pile on looking for both good and bad faith reasons. And then when it was canceled, unsurprisingly and prematurely, they're like, oh no, I really liked looking. I didn't want it to get canceled. It's like, well, you dumb. Never mind the very nasty expletive I was going to use. <laughs> Why didn't you watch it when it was on the air? But this is the problem that gay people frequently face. Like, we are a minority. Um, even now, like we're still, queer people are still a minority. So it's, in order for these kinds of movies to succeed, we not only have to show up, we have to convince our straight friends to show up too. And like, I think that that's really important and something that's going to have to happen for films like Bros to still see theaters. And, you know, for those of us who do genuinely enjoy the theatrical experience, like myself, and like Benjamin... Like, we've got to show up for this movie and others like it because the only language that studio executives speak, as this film alludes to in the beginning, is money. Butts and seats is the only thing that matters. Politics doesn't matter. Armchair critics doesn't, don't matter. Butts and seats matter. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line of Hollywood. That's the bottom line of all <laughs> the entertainment industry. Like, and you can right, complain about I'm, that. But... You, you would know better than I, but like, is a slow burn allowed anymore? Well, that's I mean, the thing. I mean, I don't say, I don't I know. Because it'll be on streaming in a month. I mean, Rotten Tomatoes, highest, one of the highest scores I've seen. Right. You know, um, you know, people leaving the theater, their reviews of it are super high. Like, every podcast I've listened to that has mentioned, you know, somebody going to it or, you know, just with anyone from the show like everyone is raving about the quality of the movie and the content of the movie um 
and yet this is what happened and it's like you're right it's just it's so overshadowed by um the monetary value of it right when i just i i just i have a feeling it's gonna make it's gonna make its money and then some um but you know i don't know it's just we're in this moment of like it's all about the first weekend or two of a right. movie. It's all about the pre-orders of a book on hardcover, not the actual like longevity of the book into paperback. Like none of that really. People want the instantaneous. Yes, and it doesn't um, have the like as you alluded to like outlets like Rotten Tomatoes, like Box Office Mojo, like the figures are right there, for, and that dominates the not just the studio mindset but the general populist mindset, and that rarely does these things any good. And I read a piece. Us, like right after this, the movie came out, it was like, in some ways, Bros is 25 years too late. Like, if it had come out in the late 90s when we had The Birdcage and we had other movies like that, it could have done quite a lot of business. But because Hollywood chickened out and went the more conservative route of superhero movies um, that sort of slowly came to gobble up the box office over the last two decades, it kind of spells the doom for any kind of... Middle, like A movie like this that might have done, you know, $40 million... Fifty, sixty million dollars, maybe even a hundred million dollars. You know, even just a couple of years ago, like at the early two thousand tens, maybe, almost certainly won't happen now. And it's compounded by the fact that it's going to be on streaming in a month and a half, probably, if that. So, right, right. It's as you say, it's complicated. It is complicated. But for all for that reason, that's why we spent the majority of this podcast talking about the movie itself because we deliberately made the choice to talk about that because that's the important thing, and I think that that's what people will remember. Eventually, like yeah. that will become the the thing that people remember this movie fondly for. Yes. So, the bottom line of it is, we both loved Bros a lot. I think we're probably both going to go see it again in the cinema, and we definitely recommend. Don't wait to go to see it till streaming. Again, I, I hate to put it as bluntly as this, but queer money talks, and you, we can debate and argue about how that's unfair and how that's capitalist and blah 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 blah. That's nice, but. I prefer to live in the world that we currently exist, at least for this exact moment. <laughs> I, that's, I, I apply this philosophy at my own discretion, but for the moment, I think we should all go see this to show the Hollywood powers that a queer rom-com written by and starring by starring queer people and having queerness as its subject is worthy of producing again. So I think that's a good place to stop. So give us a few moments to freshen up, take a powder our noses, and we'll be right back for a couple more segments before we say goodbye. Well, welcome back, everyone. So I just wanted to speak really briefly about the passing of Angela Lansbury, which ironically enough happened two minutes after I stepped out of the theater <laughs> um, from seeing bros. Kind of a a sour chaser, if you will. It was quite sad to to hear of another queer icon, beloved from Mame, obviously, and Murder She Wrote, the Manchurian Candidate, the picture of Dorian Gray. Like the woman was, you know, Howard Ashman and Beauty and the Beast. Like she was a queer icon, truly. So it is the end of an era to say goodbye to her. Um, you know, and as my listeners know, like I struggle a lot with my grandmother's passing, and you know, my grandma who was. Not in any way like Jessica Fletcher or Shalinsbury, but did love Murder She Wrote, and was a nonagenarian. 
it is deeply sad um, to see the passing of yet another queer icon. If you want to hear more about this, Mike, another podcast I co-host, the Cabot Cope Gazette, will be doing a special retrospective on Angela Lansbury. But I just wanted to take a few minutes just to sort of acknowledge that she was truly a giant in the world of theater and film and television. And I know that I'm not the only one. I'm, not, I'm sure I know I'm not the only little queer boy out there who's kind of grieving tonight. What, oh, <laughs> Ben is giving me a, a rather overwrought look, so I'm not sure he's up to, to commenting. I mean, I adore, I adore Angela Lansbury. And I, Murder, She Wrote was always on... Um, as a kid, it's it's a favorite still of my mother's. Um, um, any mystery, really. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's from Beauty and the Beast to you know, just so much theater, so much theater. Um, you know, I, I, it's really tragic to 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 hear of her passing. Um, and I just, you know, I I came out from the theater and like immediately smoked a cigarette and saw that and immediately I was like, oh God, TJ's going to break apart. Because um, it's been, you know, there's been a lot of loss, a lot of loss um, personally and, it, you know, in, in in entertainment in the past couple years, it's just been, it's been a lot. Um, it has. So I, I just, I don't want to comment too much just because I'm not the most uh, familiar with, with her credits, but I, I will say that my mother is going to be broken up and um and you know she had a really good run i mean that was what i was going to say like i've i I won't get into this too much because i mean i'm not any shy about sharing my feelings or my personal life on this podcast but as has been said i've had a lot of loss in the last week Uh, a good friend of mine or not good but a friend of mine in grad school um passed away unexpectedly yesterday so grief and and my best friend's mother passed away recently, too. So grief has been very much on my mind lately. But I think it's a testament to Lansbury's legacy and, you know, to her life that people wish that they could have had more time with her. Like, I think that that's the testament to a good life, is that even if you get to be, like, 96 or 97, which was, or 99, as the case was with Betty White or my, you know, my grandmother or other people, like, it's really says something about the kind of life that you've led that people say, we didn't have enough time with you. And so I think that that's a really extraordinary thing for Angela Lansbury to... to, I know that I'm not the only one feeling like that. Because I think that she's another one of those people that a lot of queer boys in particular felt like was their grandmother. Like, and I mean, there's just a a strong connection between gay boys and their grandmothers. I don't know what it is. It's just, it's a thing. Um, And so, you know, to hear that she died, even if it was peaceful, which by all accounts it was, it's still wrenching and brings up all the usual specters of grief but as i said we can at least celebrate and take joy in the fact that she had such clearly a fantastic life and left so much joy behind her and i think that that's what we should celebrate absolutely all right so on a somewhat lighter note um i also just wanted to just acknowledge that it's national coming out day so this is this is a big lots of queer emotions today like there's a lot of them like i said my my colleague who passed away was himself gay i heard from about his passing from his husband and so like a lot of this stuff has been on my mind and then watching bros today and angela it's like oh my god there's like oh, for a pisces this is a lot there's a lot going on um and i'm here with one of my best gay friends like anyway i'm not gonna keep going but i just wanted to say that it's important that we acknowledge coming out day like my coming out experience was remarkably smooth um my parents were just sort of like 
way more nice to do about it when I came out as like, not that it was a big surprise, I'm sure coming out at 18, but you know, I didn't lose any friends. I haven't lost any family over coming out. And I think that that's nice. Um, and so, you know, this is kind of a quasi deep cut too. Cause like there's that moment when, uh, you know, Bobby is having this confrontation with Aaron's family and he's going about this in exactly the wrong way. Cause he's getting really confrontational and I've been Bobby, and I've been that with my parents, and it caused significant damage by being an asshole. But I think one of the values of a, of a character like Bobby is to remind us that grace is possible and even desirable. And so, like, my parents and my family have given me grace unexpectedly, and I think that there's value in me returning the favor. As difficult as that may be, because they are still conservative, but grace goes both ways. And so I think that that's... A, Important, like that's not saying that we have to like make peace with outright homophobes. I'm not saying that, but I do think that on National Coming Out Day, there are many ways to come out. There's no perfect way to come out, and there's no perfect way to receive the news. But we, the grace from all parties concerned, can be very, very valuable. Yeah. Um, so my coming out also was kind of. I'm not going to say it was anticlimactic, but it was, it was, you know, they weren't shocked. They were shocked that I was talking about it that soon. But I think that, um, you know, their takeaways were don't label yourself. You're fine. You're not going to, you know, lose us or our love. Um, but also, you know, there was the weight of, what does this mean? So of course, like, you know, I didn't know. And, you know, we were just trying to process this in 1994 or whatever it was. Um, so, you know, people were dying all the time. And so um, it really seemed like this was a harder way to go about life. And it sucks that this is what it is, but you have to be our, your authentic self. Um, so I had the support of them, but then I also knew like where I was living, where I was growing up, like was, it was not something I should talk about with everybody. Um, and I needed to, um, really be self-preserving, um, which I tried to be to the best of my ability. Um, but it really, it, it was, it was a very fearful time. It was a very scary time um <clears throat> i think things have gotten different now um i'm not gonna say you know it's so much better you know it is it's so much better but it's just different you know we didn't have social media right to to try to navigate coming out um with parents that are like my age <laughs> and having social media and a cell phone at 10 years old like I, I, I wouldn't want that either. So, um, so I would kind of probably choose the way that it happened for me. Um, I just think that, um, National Coming Out Day is something that is worth, it's worth mentioning. It's worth talking about the fact that, that, you know, choosing to be your authentic self is something that, um, it takes a lot of, a lot of inner work mm -hmm. before you get there. Um, and who you choose to share it with um, really can um, kind of make or break that experience, obviously, but also kind of depict how you're going to 
choose going about that in the future. Um, but the, the older I've gotten and the more progressed we've gotten as a society in the U.S. coming out seems less and less uh, of an actual event. Um, it seems more of just like a you know, an organic thing or a presentation of this is who I'm dating kind of thing, um, which I, I wish that that could have been my, my experience was just like, oh, I met this beautiful boy and we're in love. Right. <laughs> but like there was no options of like dating anybody at that point. And it was just I needed to get it off my chest and talk about it. So I think that, you know, it's it, it's something that we need to continue to um to celebrate those that are at that moment because that moment is terrifying and it can go many different ways. And so, you know, just trying to be that supportive ear to, you know, the people in your life, especially if you're a little older, like we are, um, we've been through it and, you know, maybe somebody will tap you on the shoulder and want to like use you as a sounding board of how to like navigate this. And I think that's kind of, our role right now um, is just to kind of share our own experience, but also um, just be that support um, for the younger generation. So God bless those that are coming out today. Right. So I just want to do one final callback to bros, because I think that what you said about authenticity is a really key element of this movie that we didn't talk about quite as much. But there is that really important moment where Bobby sort of masquerades as a bro to someone at the gym. And it's a really interesting moment, both because it, as it turns out, the guy would have been attracted to him even if he hadn't adopted that person. It's actually kind of creepy and sees it as creepy that he did. But it also just reveals the actual constructedness of gender and like how these performances that so many gay men put on are both very false, <laughs> but also so very easily disregarded mm-hmm. and discarded. Because, you know, I too could talk in a deep voice if I wished. In fact, my no, my normal vocal register is somewhere down here, but I have more of the... I don't know if my listeners would forgive me if I spoke like this. Let alone more of the, hey, dude, what's going on? Like, I, too, can drop my voice as Bobby does, but it's not very convincing. And so, like, I enjoy that about bros and about what you just said, that there's a real value in living authentically and that as difficult as it may be, it is tremendously rewarding and your life is made much better by doing it. it however you choose to do it, it, I think the authenticity is the most important thing. Absolutely. So give us one more moment and we'll be right back. Well, thank you again for joining us for another fabulous episode of Queens the Bees. I know that I've had a fantastic time talking about bros. I had a wonderful time. Ben is one of my very favorite co-hosts, and his former episode, Mambo Italiano, remains one of our most popular episodes on the platform. Hopefully that will be true of bros as well. So, if you would like to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at TJ West and the number three. You can also follow me on Instagram at Thomas West and the number three. And you'll be happy to know we do officially have our own Instagram after months and months of me promising and not delivering. We finally have it. It's at Queens of the Bees. Just one, all one word. You can find us there. We'll be posting about, obviously, links to this particular podcast, bite-sized reviews, but also other things that I happen to be watching and want to talk about that don't necessarily have enough to give themselves to a whole episode. So, Ben, can, do you want to share your social media channels with us? Um... You don't have to. I don't really have any besides Instagram, and even that is like, it's private. Oh, uh, these Gen Xers. It's private. These Gen Xers, they are killing me with the lack of social media. I know, I know. Um, 
But I will. I think it's also worth pointing out that despite the fact that Ben has relatively few Instagram followers, every selfie this bitch posts gets like almost 200 likes. I keep a tra- I keep track of it just to compare it to my own rather paltry <laughs> displays. But be that as it may, he has been a fantastic guest, and I don't want to I don't want to leave you with the note I'm, that he's lame in any way. I'm not lame in any way. Um, but I do. My friends are very supportive. That's all I can say. I don't. I don't. You know, I follow way too many people. So do I. Um, My own ratio is But the people that follow me, it seems like like what I have to say and what I share. And I don't share selfies much at all. It's so true. when I do, they, they, keep the they love. tend to like it. Yeah. Well, as I told him, he needs to share a selfie with the link to this episode. So, um, for all of you out there, if you would like to uh, give us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts, Apple and whatnot, please do so, because the more reviews and ratings that we get, the better and easier it is to find us. And of course, we enjoy all the positive commentary, but if you have any constructive feedback, I suppose we can take that too, although I much prefer compliments. Um, So once again, thank you all so much for listening to us gab on about bros. There's much more that we could say, but... We have to keep it mindful of time. So I want to, once again, extend an enormous thank you to Ben for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And if you guys have a second, go on there and hit five stars, five stars only, for this podcast. And then also, you know, go see Bros in the Theater and give it give a good rating too, you know, or whatever you feel. But I think you're going to agree with us that it's a phenomenal movie and this podcast worth listening to. So, you know. I couldn't have said it better myself. So once again, thanks so much for listening to the Queens of the Bees, and we'll be back with you next week. Rip, rip.